TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Careers Unplugged, the weekly show connecting you to secrets of career success. If you feel success. being happy, committed, Careers and passionate Unplugged about your career is important, you're in the right place. My name's Rich Sayer, and I'm here with the fabulous co-founder of Careers Unplugged, Make a Big Training, and the Master of Me coaching program, Stewie Hayes. Stu, how was your day? <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here, Rich. It was a fantastic day. And not only that, but we've got a fantastic episode today. Tell me more. Our special guest is a singer and a songwriter and a guitarist and a producer. He's had a number of top 10 hits over the years. He's fronted two of Australia's most iconic bands, Daddy Cool and Mondo Rock. And he's a legend of the Australian rock and roll industry. Ross Wilson, thanks for joining us on the show. Hey, my pleasure. It was quite a build-up. Thank you. (laughs) Very impressive list of things to talk about, to be honest. (laughs) Ross, uh, thanks for being on the show. Um, Obviously, the show's all about careers. What was your first ever job? Well, my first ever job, like uh, a lot of kids, uh, I I would say it was my paper round. Uh, Before that, I sold them in the street. You could sell them in the street down at Hampton Station. And then uh, I got uh, promoted. I had a round after that. I was so young and so naive. You'll love this. And, and, and an entrepreneur, I, I can't remember how old I was. I must have only been about like seven or something. Yeah. And I saw all these kids selling papers down the street when the train, you know, afternoons when the trains came in after school. Yeah. And uh, so I thought, gee, that looks pretty good. So I went down the street and I started selling papers. Except I sold about the second guy who bought one went, Hey, this is like last week's paper. Because I just picked up all the papers from down the street. <laughs> and, and I went, oh, that has to be today's paper. Oh, well. oh that's gold. Uh, <laughs> so how did you start your journey into, into your illustrious career? How did it all begin? Well, it's, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, I've, I've had to answer this question a few times, but I, I guess I was just – I was, you know, a bit of a sponge musically, uh, picking up stuff I heard around the house. But, of course, I just listened to radio all the time. And just like kids today, you listen to whatever's on the charts and what's been plugged. And, you know, I I found I had an affinity to kind of the wilder things, you know. I guess you'd, you know, when I heard um, Lightning Hopkins, the blues singer. Yep. And it really got to me. I went, wow. And I said to my mother who was hip enough to know the right answer, I said, what kind of music is that? And she said, 12-bar blues, right? And I thought she said, crowbar blues. <laughs> right? So for about a year or six months or whatever, I thought, because Lightning Hopkins, I don't know if you ever heard him, but he's very kind of edgy and crowbar. And crowbar blues sounded like the right title for it. <laughs> you know, I thought, wow. For a while, I was going to go, man, that crowbar blues—that's really where it's at. You know? <laughs> did you have Did you have a guitar in your hand at this point? Were you jamming no, along? I didn't have a guitar. No. In fact, I'm not a very good guitarist. I come up with some good riffs, and then I get good people to play them. You know, I hire them. <laughs> but uh, but I started out. I started playing the harmonica, blues harmonica, when I was about maybe sixteen. Before that, I tried playing the piano. That was uh, sorry, the, not the piano. I was playing. We had a piano. But I wasn't very good at that either. But I was, I was trying to, move, I was trying to um, play uh, the trumpet because my dad had some trumpets lying around. He was an amateur trumpeter. I wasn't very good at that. 
but I was yeah, I was in the right direction. And then and then I picked up the blues harmonica because I heard the Stones and the Beatles and people like that were in vogue and I and I thought, wow, that sounds pretty good. And then I, I got stuck into the blues and I found the guys who could really play. Um, you know, heard Muddy Waters records with harp players on it and and uh, the Excello, this guy on Accelo label, Lazy Lester, and and that's how I learned how to play blues harp. And I went down to local church hall where my mate Keith Glass had a band playing Rolling Stone songs and sat in with them and played King Bee on the harmonica. And these other guys who'd been playing like instrumentals came up to me, the young guys, and said, hey, we want to play music like that. You can play the harp. Can you sing? <laughs> and I said, well, yes, I can. I can sing because I'd, I'd been, you know, I'd been singing around the house and singing along with records and it was a pretty musical house when you you look back on it and there was things at school and I was also had been in the local Anglican choir courtesy of my mother dragging me and my brother along. <laughs> Ross, how did you, I mean, such a diverse... Um, tapestry of things, you know, you've, you've got the crowbar on one hand, you've got um, Muddy Waters, Rolling Stones, Church Choirs. Yeah. How did you bring that in together and how did it evolve out of all that? I guess it came out of that thing that I could sing. I played the blues harmonica. I was very interested in in R&B, uh, you know, of all kinds. I guess from that I, I got a, I had a kind of natural ability already, but that kind of swinging, kind of jazzy swing boogie-woogie kind of thing, that's what I leant towards and, and you know, I'm, I st- I, that's what a, a mu- music has to swing. I have to have that kind of groove going otherwise Is that how you measure your success? Is it more about what you've been playing? Yeah, if, it, if, it's, if I'm moving, yeah. you know, and I think that's my mission in life that I've, it, it, with the bands I've had is like to get people up off their asses and moving around the room. You know, it's not so much about me being on stage. Mm. It's more about the whole event. It's a communal experience. Mm. And I do my job probably, then the people will will do it too. And we'll all be we'll all be doing it together, which is great. So what I'm hearing, Ross, is is a very clear goal for you, you know, that that uh, we've all seen death by empty dance floor. Um, at a gig, yeah. at a gig. So your goal is really much, you know, is is to get it back from the audience. Yeah, and I would say that ninety percent of the time I'm successful. Yes, get, so getting that happen because of because of what I've learned over time. You of know? course. So in the arts, uh, the arts can be tough. How important is setting goals, or how important has setting goals been for your success overall? Well, in the beginning, I didn't really have any goals except to enjoy myself mm-hmm. and to, you know, where's the next gig? And when I left school, I I spent, I remember I finished I finished year 12 and uh, I was hanging around the house watching midday movies and it was sort of getting towards the end of January and my mother said to me, what are you, you going to do now? And I went, ah, oh, I don't know. She said, well, you can't just sit around the house watching, watching. Uh, you know, you're not at school anymore. There aren't any more school holidays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the light went on and I went, oh. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and got a job. I was already playing in bands, of course, at that stage. Mm. And some of the kids in the band were moving on to uni and so they were leaving. They decided they didn't want to play music. They wanted to go to uni. 
but me and Ross, Han- Ross Hannaford, who was younger than me, he was still at school. So I thought, well, I'll go and get a job. So in those days, it was pretty easy to get a job at the, in the public service. So I got a job, passed the exam, and started working in the Department of Supply. The great thing about working with the public service in those days was, one, you could smoke in the office. <laughs> Two, as a tender clerk, I was blessed. I fell into the right job just purely because, you know, they said, "Which do you want to go to the PMG or the Department of Supply? Because they were the available jobs. I said, uh, I thought, I've got a mate who works at the PMG. He hates it. I'll go to Department of Supply. So I ended up, I had this desk with a phone, right? <laughs> so after my doing a file, I'd have a cigarette and a cup of tea and then ring up on the phone and go, hey, got any gigs for me this week? You know, it was perfect. So I was, you know, just using the phone and doing what I had. And, and so after about two and a half years, um, I guess I was around about 21 and we were getting enough gigs and I thought I'm going to I'm going to make the leap. And this is one of the things that kids say, well how do I make it in show business? And the first thing I say is, well you've got to be prepared to make the leap. Mm. You know, what are you doing now? You know, oh, I'm an accountant. Well, that's what why you look so square. You can't be in a rock band and be an accountant, you know. <laughs> you yeah. you got to you, if you think you can have the day job and and the rock gig and be wild and that you can't. No, nah, it's all or nothing. You know, you got to do, be prepared like artists of old to starve in a garret for you for what you're doing. <laughs> and when you're 21, you can do that because yeah. you just leap off into the unknown and just let it happen. And that's the thing you got to let it happen. You know, you, you and I try to explain this to people who aren't ready to hear that, and they go, "Gee." That sounds, you know, pretty drastic. But when you're 21, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I mean, I, I imagine there would have, a lot of people would have been trying to talk you out of that at the time. But. No, no. Wonderful thing so my parents could see that things were moving ahead. They never discouraged me from yeah. from the music thing except on the level of do you think, you know, this is you, – do you want to do any tertiary education? And, yeah, and yeah. I, I, I was basically – no, I just want to – I had an opportunity to go get this to an agricultural college out in the bush. And I went, at that time, I went, nah, I'm going to stay here in the city where the, where the action is. I couldn't <laughs> has, someone, has someone ever had to give you a wake-up call? A wake-up call? With mm. What kind? You know, maybe you were heading in the wrong way or, you know, something you, you might have been heading off track. Well, in fact, you I never listened anyway, you know, so it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> So, so Ross, uh, in in those formative years, or even even after, once you're well and truly on the road, has there been someone not on vinyl? So, not just through the 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 education you get through listening to records, but has there been a, a person that's come along that's been a mentor or a coach to you, or that guided you or gave you advice? And that's a good question. And the answer is, until I was about forty, no. Yep. I was pretty much made my own decisions about where to go next and I was pretty much the band leader, whether people liked it or not. Mm. Uh, They tended to go along with me for for some reason. Um, I guess they liked what I was doing. And then at times I would, like, for instance, I made a decision to break up Daddy Cool. We'd only been around for about two years or so, but, you know, I'd been to America, uh, the various things happened, 
fell into what I thought was like bad company with American um, managers and various things that we didn't like the way things were going. Yep. But saw the opportunities in, in America to do, go back to what I was doing before, which is in the party machine, contemporary music rather than retro kind of thing. So you can hear the struggle in the Daddy Cool albums between the retro and then the second album was trying to go in a more modern direction, mm. which was okay. But I thought, well... You know, in America we had a great time and I thought, well, I'd like to make a more contemporary band and go back there. So I formed Mighty Kong, which kind of looked good on paper and did do contemporary stuff but didn't quite gel. So what was the what was the mentor bit? What Who, who came along and... Well, I think it was my friend who's now deceased, um, Gary Rabin, mm. who wanted to get into band management or into artist management, band management, whatever you call it, uh, he, he was already had a very successful advertising business and, he, and a, he was a very singular kind of person and he already knew, he'd, he'd kind of made the moves, he knew all the other good managers that were around, you know, mm. John Woodruff and people like that, um, that were managing the Angels and, and Cold Chisel and he, he knew them all and he was friends with them. So... Mondo Rock came to a bit of uh, he'd made friends with me and um, Mondo Rock came to a bit of an impasse and he said and we we got rid of the manager we had at the time he said I'll manage you (laughs) and with one step stepped right into the top upper echelon of management in Australia so he was a smart guy right they accepted him straight away because they already knew him yep he'd already had a very successful advertising business, had plenty of money. And the advice that he was giving me and the things that he he did with Daddy, um, uh, Mondo Rock was in a financial hole. Uh, he he managed to pull us out of it and did all the right things. And so so he, for quite a long time, even when after um, Mondo Rock um, finished and I started doing solo things and he was sort of my prime advisor and uh, was very good at making deals and all of that kind of stuff. So he was the he was one of the first kind of all-round manager who was I think you know very extremely good at his job. The others were pretty good but not always good. Yeah. Mm. So Ross, um, Ross time for a change in direction. So this little segment now is what we call the fast 10. <coughs> yeah. um, so what we're going to do is ask um, 10 Short questions, and what we'd like you to do is just answer instinctively with whatever comes to your mind. Yep. And and for listeners, uh, for those listeners who are new to Careers Unplugged, we like to ask our guests the scariest and deepest questions. No. (laughs) (laughs) We are actually only joking. So, uh, um, Ross, have you always wanted your career, or is there something else you've wanted to do? I've asked myself that question and I always came back to the answer, gee, what else would I do, you know? <laughs> so, no, it's always been it. But I have had occasions when I thought about, is this the right way to go? Mm, mm. So, Russ, uh, where do you reckon you're hearing, heading now, from zero to hero or hero to zero? That's a good question because I, I've got to admit I have been at a little bit of a, a um, you know, creative um, blockage. Mm. But I'm interested in a lot of new music, and I always have been interested in what's new and what's next, and what I 
my instincts. So, so I was just over in, for instance, I just got back from uh, Europe and one of the things I did while I was over there on, on business was um, go to this uh, electronic music festival in Croatia called Outlook, which is all bass-orientated music from, you know, house to hip-hop to dubstep to all kinds of stuff. Incredible. goes for four days and everybody has a great time in an amazing location and I caught up with um, a couple of acts that I've been interested in for the last couple of years, which, are, you know, quite out there kind of um, music. And uh, so I think I'd like to incorporate some of the modern ways of doing things, which I've kind of always done, actually, but I'm sort of going to the next level. And uh, Are you talking about uh, for your own music or yeah. as a producer of other people's music? No, more for myself. Fantastic. Yeah. And and we've sort of covered the early days. What would it be the darkest moment in your career or the biggest mistake you've made? The darkest moment? Gee, well, I know about a big mistake because, you see, I've always trusted my instincts. Like, for instance, breaking up Daddy Cool, everyone said other people were going, like, you're mad. It's, it's really successful, you know, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Well, no, I want to move on and do something else. Um, Mondo Rock was probably the most successful group I've ever had. It went for a long time, had different lineup changes. The moves I made, for instance, I broke up the first Mondo Rock and formed a totally new group, sacked the manager, got a new record company and had the, the biggest success with chemistry. Yep. yep. Um, so that was trusting my instincts. So years went by and um, it was the mid 80s, and I was thinking, you know, I don't know about this. I think it might be time to do something new. And my manager at the time said to me, oh, listen, we just got this new deal. We've got to make another album, and and this is what's in it for you, and da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, I had a uh, – I was married and I had a son. I was going to school, and, and I thought, oh, Gee, maybe I ought to do. Maybe I ought to stick around and just do it a bit longer. And so my instinct was telling me it was time to do something new, but my brain was saying, mm. "Oh, you know, you've got to provide for your family," which I'd never ever had a problem doing. Mm. Um, take the safe route, you know. And that was a mistake because it turned out that our manager was, you know, he was like, you know. He, he was getting all his work and, of course, he was taking his cut and that, he was upwardly mobile and all the rest, but he was booking us on these tours. Well, we actually running up debts <laughs> without knowing it, you know, yeah, because... Yeah, I understand. So, so suddenly it was like, oh, what, we're in, in debt, you know. I f- f- found out that we owed all these people money and I went, oh, my God. And he was kind of going to go and... Oh, don't worry, it'll all work out, you know. And I was, re- I got really angry, and and so he got the sack. But in the meantime, we had to pull ourselves out of that hole. So if I had moved on when I felt I ought to have moved on, that wouldn't have happened. And 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 the reward for making the big taking the wrong turn and not trusting my instincts was two years of hard grind on the road. Yep. Yep. What what about the other the other side of the spectrum? What was the what was the biggest break do you reckon you've had in your career? Well, probably when I went to I got a well, I had a band called The Party Machine with 
that I'd left the public service and then we went off and we got ripped off left, right and centre, but we were making good music and getting a bit, getting a bit dispirited. I got a call from Brian Peacock from the band Procession, who I knew, and they were in England and they'd had a lineup change and they decided they wanted a full-on lead singer, not just guys who played guitars that sang and stuff, and they'd like the party machine. And I got this call and he said, come on over, you, you want to come over and sing with us? I went, what the heck, you know? I spoke to the guys and they said, yeah, go do it, you know? And so I, I went over there and, and um, had a great time hanging around London in 1969, which is a pretty prime time. <laughs> Would have been awesome. And... And then we lived down in this big house in Surrey, and we had a uh, we had a Saturday night residency at the Marquee. I mean, it didn't go anywhere, but we were making music and and having a fantastic time. And then they decided to call it quits after about six months of that. And I had a journey from London back to Australia with my new bride, Pat Wilson, yep. and went to all of these places with no money. Right, so I had to we had to fend for ourselves, trying to get back to Australia. So it was kind of like the Odyssey, and that was the biggest <laughs> learning experience of my entire life. It really Odyssey. set me up to do things later. You know, I learned so much traveling with no money, meeting fantastic people, being taken to their houses, traveling on public transport through Iraq, Kuwait, mm. Iran, wow. West Pakistan the town in Quetta where the Taliban and that, that all live now, you know, <laughs> and uh, India and, and you know, you name it, like, and ending up in Darwin, totally broke. <laughs> and then we both work at the uh, Darwin Hotel, you know, for uh, so we money. money to come back to Melbourne <laughs> on, a, on a bus travelling through the middle of Australia, which was half unmade road. So by the time I got back, I like I... I'd, I had Australia in perspective That's, uh, as, as a small part of the world rather than before when I lived in Melbourne and thought, this place, I can't handle it anymore. It's, you know, getting me down. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. came back and, I, and had a fair idea of what I wanted to do. And within, within oh, nine months, I think, was playing with Daddy Cool at the TF Much Ballroom. But before that, it already had Sons of Vegetable Mother, which was like a crazy psychedelic group, and um, and we burst out of there from the underground. You know, so, so after such a big adventure, and and really, you know, looking at your career, you've had some enormous highs, number one hits, you've produced yeah. number one albums. What would you say was the you know the moment, the 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 pinnacle, the top of the mountain? What what for you was the biggest rush? Writing the songs, performing the songs, seeing it in the charts. Which which bit gave you the biggest buzz? If you had to put your finger on it. Well, when you write a song, and then you got a bunch of guys like Daddy Cool who are perfect for that song. I already already had written Eagle Rock, right? Yep. But then to have the just. By pure luck and, you know, knowing Ross Hannaford and meeting Gary Young, but it was fate, you know. He was mm-hmm. he was out of work. We both worked at this book warehouse. He knew Wayne Duncan and we put it together and there was no other band that could have played that song like we did, mm. yeah. you know. So that was, I think, I always look back on those things as like 
allowing things to happen. Mm. You know, you put things into motion, then you have to allow them to happen. And I'd say that if you, this this show that I'm on now is about careers, um, it's about instinct, trusting your instinct, but also recognising opportunities when they present themselves. Mm. You know, some people who end up bitter and twisted go, I could have made it, and you go, well, why didn't you? Yep. And it's because they didn't walk through that door at mm. the time. Mm. You know, now you don't know what's on the other side of that door. It mightn't be what you're expecting. Mm. But at least it'll be some, and, and my experience is that it you walk through the door and then you go, oh, gee, I wasn't expecting that, but it might be something better. You absolutely, know? absolutely. And, and that's, you that's, follow uh... it through and that leads to another door. And you go, oh, another door. But some people can't see the door. Yep. They it's, can't turn the handle and they won't open it. And, you know, I think that's the difference. It's the trees it, of know? the forest, isn't it? And it's also trusting my own taste and judgment. Now, with music, it's a lot to do with your personal taste. It's very subjective, you know. Mm. And so when I saw, here I was with a band that was about to break up, Mighty Kong, the one that didn't quite work, <laughs> playing at the Melbourne University on one of our last gigs, there's a band playing, supporting us called Skyhooks. I went, what's that? (laughs) They they were rough as guts and I thought, those songs are really good, you know. Mm. They had everything I liked. They were funny. They were kind of irreverent. Mm. So I formed a relationship with them and we made that happen. So in in, in a way, I think one of my greatest achievements was out of thin air becoming the producer of Skyhooks and making that a, a really big success, you know, helping to helping to get their talent. And I'd already been through the experience and pretty well like going to them, now do this, don't do that because, you know, mm. um, let's get with the right people, you know. And they yeah. were for quite a while uh, – Willing and eager to listen to me, and so I think that's one of my that's one of my greatest achievements. The things that the thing that I'm proud about is one of one of the things I'm most proud about is a thing that was just to do with my my taste in music and and help and helping someone else. You're asking about mentors. Well, I was definitely a mentor to Skyhooks for a couple of years. You know, yep, I was the the sixth Skyhook, and. If, here's a random one. If you could have uh, all your time again and you could have anyone's career, whose career would you like to have had? <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not big on envy. Um, you know, I've, that thought has never, ever occurred to me. I've got to tell you, That's... never, ever has, it, has that occurred to me. I mean, I could have gone and lived anywhere. And At one stage I thought about moving to America because that's where all the music I liked was. But uh, on the other hand, I thought, nah, I don't want to live in LA. You know, it's all smoggy and horrible. They have earthquakes and (laughs) da-da-da-da-da. Why can't I just do it from here and go over there? So that's what we were doing. You know, we were trying to break into things. We didn't make really big waves. We had our chances with Daddy Cool and with Mondo Rock. Mm. So I'm pretty happy with the way things have gone, you know. Like uh, I can't think of anybody that I would go like, you know, what – I want to be Bruce Springsteen. No, I don't want to be Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, he stole, to me he like stole the, my name, the boss. It's a guy. It sounds to me like yeah. a guy who's had great, um, who's having and continues to have great satisfaction with what they're doing in their career. Which yeah, well, is well, I do. Yeah, you know, um, 
you know, I'm getting a bit long in the tooth now, but I still like getting up on stage and having a good time. And we're, you know, I've been travelling around with, uh, we did probably one of the most successful tours I've ever done this year, which was with with my peers, with Daryl Braithwaite, Joe Camilleri, and the youngster of the group, James Rain, and me doing a fantastic show called Time of of My Life uh, that sold out all over the place. And we're doing some encore performances, uh, so keep your eyes open for that. And you mentioned the super band earlier. We've actually run out of time for this episode, yep. Ross. But before we finish up, um, you know, firstly, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey. Could you just share with the listeners a little bit about the super band, what they should keep a lookout for? Yeah, well, they're, they're going to be, um, like I said, we've already done one very successful tour. We're going to be playing at the Caloundra Music Festival up in Queensland, and we're uh, we're doing. I, we, I think this is a surprise. We're doing the uh, uh, a thing at the AFL, though not at, not at half time. We're doing mm-hmm. a thing after the after the uh, grand final. Okay. So there, there's all kinds of things have popped up because uh, it's not just the fact that we get up and sing like we do about half an hour. Of, of each of our own material, then we all get up at the end together and sing our, sing each other's songs together, and that's what really blows people all away. I think <laughs> I think that sums it up, isn't it? About music, it's uh, it's about playing together and yep. and, uh, and what you create together. Ross, that's all we've got time for. Thanks so much for coming on the show. To all of you at home, in the car, or wherever you are, thanks for joining us. Make sure you visit careersunplugged.com or Facebook to leave your comments. And, of course, give this episode a five-star rating on iTunes. Do it for Ross. <laughs> this has been Careers Unplugged with Rich and Stu. Thanks, guys. Careers Unplugged, proudly sponsored by the Master of Me coaching program, helping you succeed in life career and business. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.